Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. He has said that the video doesn't represent who he is, but I think it's clear to anyone who heard it that it represents exactly who he is. Who, oh, but, 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 from everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, that the, the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America. I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. I'm Michael Barbaro. This is a special two-part episode of The Run-Up. We're on a Long Island Railroad train from Penn Station to Port Jefferson to see Michael D'Antonio. He wrote a biography of Donald Trump a few years ago. And in the process of writing that book, he sat down with Donald Trump, his ex-wives, and his children for these really long and rich interviews that no one else has ever heard but we've heard them now, and we're going out to meet with Michael at his home and to talk about what he learned and what we can learn from those tapes. Over the next couple of days, we'll listen together to exclusive audio interviews with Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump and try to better understand him as a man and as a candidate through these never-before-heard recordings, in his own words. Recorded in 2014, they were the last extensive interviews that Trump did before he began his run for president. Michael D'Antonio had never planned to release these recordings. They were strictly researched for his biography. But then Donald Trump not only ran for president, he ran the kind of campaign he's running for president. And Michael had second thoughts. He talked to Hillary Clinton's campaign about the tapes, but nothing ever came of it. It wasn't until I interviewed Michael for a separate story and learned about the tapes that Michael ever agreed to share them with someone else. So last week we sat down with Michael in his living room and asked him to listen back with us and help us to contextualize what we're hearing. Michael, thank you for letting us into your home. It's beautiful. Well, it's great to have you here. So how skeptical was Donald Trump when you approached him about the project? Well, Donald is the classic salesman. So the very first thing he does is he says, oh, I can't possibly let you have it, whether it's a used car or a piece of property, or in this case, access for interviews. But we all know that he, publicity is sort of how he measures success himself. When he was very young, he started 
subscribing to a clipping service so that every day he started his day with a sheaf of articles that featured his name, and he still does it today. So I kind of knew the minute we called that I'd get in there and a brief conversation was enough for him to say, oh, of course you can do this book and I'll meet with you at least six times. So I think just the idea that there'd be another biography of him was such an affirmation that it was irresistible to him. I mean, what I really want to talk to you about today is not just the logistics of the book, but what you came to understand about Trump after spending all this time with him and with his wives and with his family. Because as a biographer, you're asking questions that like, that are trying to get at the heart of who he is, his motivations, his self-reflection, his psychology. And if this interview is successful, I hope that we're going to capture something about who Trump is that we haven't before, even though he's been on the presidential campaign trail for 16 months. So let's start with his earliest years. We know his father, Fred Trump, was a real estate developer from Queens, and Donald Trump took over his business. What was it like to be the child of Fred Trump? I'm certain that it was a very mixed thing for Donald. This was a father who was one of the richest men in America. He was quite powerful politically, although folks didn't know it. He was also really tough on his kids, so he was someone who demanded a great deal, demanded obedience, demanded performance in school. So on the one hand, Donald wanted for nothing. It was such a luxurious lifestyle that if it rained and he had to deliver newspapers, it was a chauffeur that would drive him around in a limousine. But on the other, if he misbehaved at school, I got the sense that there was hell to pay, that this was not the kind of household where the kids relaxed very much. I think that there was quite a bit of stress, and I think it was stress related to Fred's expectations. He was a tough guy. How tough? Oh, I, you know, he was so tough that his elder son, Fred Jr., could never please him. And even as a young man, when Fred was given a chance to do some projects on his own, the father followed him up and basically berated him in front of the people who worked for him. So I think he was willing to humiliate his kids. You know, this is also the father who joined with Donald in the joke about how Fred Jr.'s job as an airline pilot later in life was the same as driving a bus. So I don't think that this was a guy who was easy to please, and I don't think that he let you forget your mistakes. In fact, you know, one of the things that really struck me about Donald's description of his dad was that you had to stand up to him. And, you know, someone who makes you stand up to him is communicating something very profound about how tough they are and what they value. And what they value is aggression and the ability to fight back. And not everyone is built that way. And I don't think Fred Jr. was built that way. So Donald sent off at a pretty young age to military school. And he talks about his experience there in a really interesting way. It's a little like the movies you see in the, you know, the movies about the drill sergeants. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting in your face. And and really getting in your face. I mean, like, big league. And even beyond getting in your face, you know. And it was was, uh, tough, but it was great. And, you know, I, I, I acclimated. See, in life, you have to acclimate. 
No, I went in there as a wise guy. You were little. You were 13 years old. 13. I was five years up there. But I went in as a wise guy that was a little difficult. And by the time I graduated, I was like top of the military heap. What that is is acclimation. You have to learn how to acclimate. Does that make sense to you? Sure. I think it's an important lesson. Now, you can go two ways. You can fight the system, and you're not going to win because you're not going to beat guys like this. So you can fight the system, and some kids did, and they never, they always were wiped out. Or you can acclimate and deal with the system and evolve in the system. And I did that, and I did well. You know, I mean, I did well. What do you make of that? This idea of Donald Trump evolving and making an effort to work within the system, it's not how we think about him at all now. Well, the thing that is consistent with the Donald that we know now is that it's manipulative. What was in his heart was often defiance, but his will to be the best and to succeed, and I guess to survive, and also not be sent home, not to have people call up and tell that very tough father, we don't want this kid. So his solution to all of this was to be the most obedient boy. And and it's a strange thing. So, and I think we see this today in one of the recent debates, Hillary got under Donald's skin by saying, you went to see the president of Mexico and you choked. And the truth is that Donald does choke. If some situation arises and the other person is also very tough or maybe has an advantage over him, he's not going to be so bullying because the bullying won't work. Trump told you about how tough it was at military school, how much discipline was woven into every moment of every day there. It's hard to imagine a time when Donald Trump was taking direction from anyone. What I think he does is he identifies the keys to success in the arena he occupies at any moment. And I don't think it really goes beyond the moment. And this is one of the keys to understanding how he's constantly redefining success. At the New York Military Academy, success was getting the highest rank, um, being favored by the sergeant, having something to say over the lives of the other boys, you know, being somewhere in the hierarchy that was high status. And so he adapted. And if that required him to shine shoes or polish his buttons, he would do it. There's also, I think, something in the fact that being the kid who was the low man was a very bad thing at the military academy. Those kids were abused by the other boys. Some of them suffered so much that they ran away, wound up in the local hospital, would get arrested wandering the streets. This was such a tough place that there was also, I think, a survival element to it, and that's consistent with Donald's view of the world as being a very tough place. I'm struck by how much in the interview he romanticizes the toughness of the place, even the kind of violence of the place. And why would he do that? He he talks about life outside the military school years later in a way that makes you think he kind of misses the kind of belligerence of the place. Well, I think he misses the orderliness of it. You know, inside the 
confines of that military academy, everyone's role was very well defined. The, the rank of each individual was on his shoulders and on his sleeves, whether he had bars or not. And I think this is very appealing to a person who keeps score. And above all things, Donald likes to keep score, whether he's looking at his bank account or his real estate portfolio, or as you would see later in his life, measuring how beautiful the woman on his arm is compared with the women on the arms of men that he considers rivals. He's always keeping score, and, and there's no better place to keep score than inside a military institution. There's a moment in the interview where he talks about truly relishing fights, combat of all different kinds. I was, I was a very uh, rebellious kind of person. I don't like to talk about it, actually, but I was a very rebellious person and a very um, set in my ways. And in eighth grade? I loved to fight. I always loved to fight. Physical fights? Yeah, all kinds of fights. Physical, Arguments? All types of fights. Any kind of fight, I loved it including physical. Does that go back to his childhood? Does that go back to his father? I think it does. I think where he first learned to fight was actually in moments with his dad. And it may not, I'm sure it wasn't a physical confrontation between them. I think it's more a matter of Donald always arguing. And and you see, again, in the debates where he would interrupt Hillary Clinton by saying wrong, you know, this is something that he would have done at the dining room table. And if he was asked, you know, why didn't you eat your Brussels sprouts, there would have been a long discussion about why they weren't worthy of being eaten. And, you know, it just, you can imagine how difficult he would have been. But I actually think that his father admired this. So the idea with Fred was to give it back to him and to show that you were as wily and tough and scrappy as he was, and that's how you got his respect. I mean, this very exercise we're doing of trying to get to the bottom of who Trump is is something that he seems to reject in his conversation with you. It comes up a couple of times in the long conversations you two had that he does not want to be thinking about his own history. All right, so you know I'm trying to march you through your life. Yeah, and right, and right. you are in the present. Yeah, well, <laughs> You're I'm, always no, in the present. I, I'm never in the past. <laughs> right, I know, I know. I mean, it's hard for you. The problem you have with me is I'm not in the past. I'm, yeah. I'm a person that thinks to the future. But let me see if I can relate this. I learned this. from the past, but I don't, I, don't, I don't focus on the past, except I learn from the past, well, which I think is a very important lesson for the book. So is this actually reflective of the way Donald Trump lives his life? Kind of why bother looking backward? Because modern psychology, and my therapist certainly subscribes to this too, tells you that to not look at your past experiences is disastrous. Well, and this is why he seems to repeat mistakes. You know, he has not really listened to anyone during the course of his campaign. He keeps his own counsel, but then keeps making the same mistakes of getting lost in controversies, not knowing how to put them away and and move on to a new topic. So he doesn't reflect, and he doesn't want anyone else to. I think what's really kind of tragic about Donald is he's 
he doesn't know himself and he really doesn't want anyone else to know him. And this is why he keeps us all at arm's length. Um, his former wives, Marla and Ivana, both told me that they're not sure they really know him. And these are women who have known him, you would think, for decades. They've been acquainted with him for decades. They shared his bed. They had his children. But even they say they're not quite sure that they get this guy. And, and I think that that's partly his modus operandi. I think he doesn't want to be understood because that would make him vulnerable. But I also think that he doesn't even know himself well enough to share what he considers to be genuine. So his, his genuine reality is the most superficial one that you can imagine. And I'll, there's something else that I think is kind of important to understand, and that is that I think there's so much dissonance in his own mind and so much craziness going on inside of him that he makes everyone around him crazy too. Because the, the only way to respond to a person that doesn't make any sense or doesn't seem to be in the reality you share is to kind of go there where he is. And that's how all the people around him come to say the same things that he says and to be completely devoted to what much of the outside world considers to be an alternative reality. It's the reality he constructs, and if you want to be with him, you have to be in it with him. But it often doesn't make much sense. So you say Donald Trump doesn't really know who he is. And when I listened to the audio of your interviews with him, I was struck by a couple of moments where he sounds outright kind of self-delusional or to be deliberately dishonest about his own motivations. Let me give you an example where he begins to talk about the level of lavishness that he wants in his life or doesn't need, he says, in his life. I can say this. Um, I could be very happy in a one-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. I don't need this. For three floors on the top. You could be happy. Very, I could be very satisfied. Yeah. Um, so then what is this? I really wanted to see if, if it could be done. This is a very complex unit. Building this unit, if you look at the columns and the carvings oh, yeah. and everything, this, building this unit was harder than building the building itself. Oh. Uh, I show very few people this this unit, which is, again, three floors, and the roof. That we are, I have a park on the roof, which is spectacular. Presentation is very important towards success. There are fantastic ideas out there that will never get published or built mm -hmm. or whatever it or may seen. be. Yeah. We're seeing yeah. because of lack of presentation. This sounds pretty at odds with the Donald Trump that we know. <laughs> you know, in the moment, he might really think that he's telling the truth when he says, I could be happy in a one-bedroom apartment. But it's complete nonsense. This is the same person who talks about how ridiculous it is for candidates to discuss their humble origins. He says, I'm not impressed by someone's humble origins. That just means that they come from nowhere. And I don't want somebody who comes from nowhere. I want someone who's at the top. So, you know, this is a guy who lives 
on the very top floor of, of a very tall skyscraper that has his own name on it. it. It's an apartment that has a giant reception area that's formally decorated, almost as if you're entering the Shah's palace in Tehran in the 1970s. So I don't think this claim of I'll be satisfied with this humble life is at all based in reality. There must have been in that moment when we were talking for him a need to make me think this. I think you might be right because the moment he said that to you was in one of the three floors of this penthouse apartment of Trump Tower at 57th and 5th Avenue. So you know and he knows that this is not a one-bedroom apartment. Right. You know, I think that there is something about him that pursues this display of luxury as a signal to the world. He thinks that we think that this is what a billionaire's life is supposed to look like. So it's not even Donald Trump's life that he's living. What he's living is the life of an imaginary billionaire. And really, it's the imagination of a five or six-year-old boy that is coming up with this. Because don't forget, he says, I'm really the same person I was in first grade. So you you could mix in a little bit of uh, Hugh Hefner style fantasy. He was in love with that Playboy image. Also, one of the people that he's talked about admiring most is Howard Hughes. And it's the Howard Hughes that he knows from the movies. So he's got a very fantasy-based detached view of what a really wealthy, powerful man looks like, and he's fitted himself with all of these symbols and the lifestyle of that person. I think he's quite confused about what he really wants, and and I don't think if um, you put a gun to his head, he could tell you. He said something else along these lines to you, which was that after all of the success you've been having on The Apprentice, which was the ultimate kind of performance, he insists to you that I'm not a performer. I don't see myself as a performer. Do you have a stage persona? No, I think I'm pretty constant. I actually think I'm pretty constant. Mm. I deal with the performers. And I guess I'm a performer. And it's, you, know, oh, you are. And I, you... I don't think of myself as a performer. You know what I think my big, biggest attribute is? I'm a great builder. If you ask... Right, but look the... at you on TV. I mean, you are really good. This is... Yeah. So not everyone is, can do this. That no. is true. That is correct. And and I have always gotten much more publicity than anybody else, and I don't have PR agents. Why would he say that? This is really interesting. If we think about the fact that his life is a construct, that it's an imagined thing that he began to create in the 1960s when he was a boy thinking about going to film school, and then a young man who produced a play on Broadway, and then pursued this image of the handsome, dashing, fabulously rich developer before he had built anything. It's always been an imaginary life. So I think when he insists that there's something sincere in that, he he would have to acknowledge that every moment of his life has been a performance. 
in order to then say, well, yeah, I'm a performer. But what does that say about his life? It means that his entire life has been an act. And I think of this as almost an existential threat. How could he turn to anyone and say, well, I've been doing all of this stuff because I thought this was what a really rich, powerful guy in Manhattan was supposed to do, but I'm not sure what I even want. He can't say that at age 70. But I think maybe this is why his presidential campaign has been so lurching and unconventional and often irrational to those of us viewing it from the outside. Maybe he doesn't even know why he's doing it and, and why he wants to be president. It, it could all be just this is a logical extension of the creation that began in the 1970s, and I don't know how to stop. I feel compelled to ask you whether you asked him whether he'd ever seen a psychologist or put himself in a position of systematically attempting to understand himself. I know that he did go once, and I don't recall whether this was a question he answered directly in our interviews or it's something that I read, but I know that when he and Ivana were having trouble, he wound up in either a psychiatrist or psychologist office. A lot of people don't know the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, so I'm not sure I can trust what he was reporting, but he did go at least once, and I recall it being at the insistence of one of the lawyers involved in their breakup, and he fled after that one appointment and didn't want to do any more of that. Now, it's possible that he did seek counseling and did undergo therapy at some point in his life. I, I know he's owned up to being depressed after he lost the $900 million in the early 1990s. Uh, so maybe he sought help then, but that wouldn't be something he would ever admit to in public. We'll be right back. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. 
If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So Trump's aversion to kind of self-reflection produces a couple of really memorable moments in your long interviews with him. One of those moments involves his brother, Fred, and the story of what happened to him and how he thinks about it and talks about it. Fred was a really happy, decent, personable young man. His ambition in life was not to be Fred Trump's heir. He, he wasn't going for the billionaire living at the top of a skyscraper. He loved life, and by every report, what he really wanted to do was fly airplanes. And this was unacceptable in the Trump family in the 1960s and early 70s because Fred Sr. wanted an heir, and this was a huge empire of 15,000 apartments, buildings scattered across Brooklyn and Queens, and some in other states. And the eldest son was expected to take over. Now, he ran up against a younger brother in Donald who really wanted the life that was assigned to Fred Jr. And so I think these two boys competed ferociously. I think Fred Sr. and Donald teamed up against Fred Jr. to point out to him his shortcomings. He was not the cutthroat kind of guy that was going to make it big in real estate in New York City. And eventually, the drinking, the uh, partying became far more important to him than anything else. He left the family business, got a job as an airline pilot, and was able to pull that off for a while. But eventually, by his early 40s, he was back in Queens, living in the family's home, and working essentially as a caretaker at some of the properties. And this death by alcoholism, I think, is the signature tragedy of Donald's early life. But the lesson that he took away from it was that Fred was weak. He couldn't manage himself and don't drink and don't do drugs. Well, first of all, Fred was a great guy, but you know, he had an alcohol yeah. problem, okay? And he was such an amazing guy and the best personality, best looking guy you'll ever see. And you know, he had a lot of things, but he had an alcohol problem. And it's one of the things I tell people. I mean, it just destroys people. You know, if you're going to put lessons, you might as well. Yeah. To me, it's such a big lesson because alcohol and drugs, people come to me about their kids. Oh, where should they go? I said, look, just make sure they don't drink and they don't take drugs. And stay away from the tattoos if possible. But, you know, <laughs> there wasn't any examination of why did he need to drink? Uh, why was he vulnerable to alcoholism? It's not even a trait that really runs through the family. It's, it's not the kind of thing where you would say, well, this was a predisposition. I think that he drank to escape, and I think he was escaping something in the Trump family. But to think about that and examine it is unacceptable to Donald. There's kind of remarkably little humanity and empathy there. If I were talking about the death of a sibling, I don't know that I would turn it into a Nancy Reagan-style, just say no slogan. Well, again, I think this is a kind of caricature of relationships, of life. It's, it's the way he knows how to talk about things. And actually, as we think about this, he's offering me this cartoon version of my brother died. The lesson is don't smoke, don't 
drink, don't take drugs, don't get a tattoo. Next question. I think that he's terrified to tell the truth about his brother. And the truth about his brother must be that he loved his brother, that they shared wonderful times growing up as kids. No two boys growing up in the same household don't wrestle and fight and go on adventures in the woods and have all kinds of beautiful memories. And there's also this tragedy of this man's early death. And none of that comes through for Donald because I'm not sure he knows how to be vulnerable in a way that is safe. And I think this goes back to his dad. This was a family where you could not be genuinely emotional and expect to get the right kind of support or the right feedback from your parent, especially Fred. Boys were supposed to be killers and kings. This was the message that Fred gave to his sons. So as a grown man, I suspect Donald has shoved this tragedy into the recesses of his heart. He doesn't want to access his feelings about it, and he's certainly not going to share it with anyone. There are a few moments in these recordings that feel like powerful foreshadowing of the man that Donald Trump will eventually become and the candidate that he will eventually become. And one of them is his first taste of real media attention. He's a high school baseball player, the best high school baseball player in all of New York by his telling. And he gets written up in a local newspaper. I'll never forget, the first time I ever saw my name in print was uh, in a little paper up in that area of New York because I had had three singles and a home run. So the the headline was, uh, Trump wins game for Nima. And I said, I love it. You loved that? Yeah, I loved it. It was the first time I was ever in a newspaper. You know, I was a young kid, right? I was probably a sophomore in high school. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I thought it was oh, amazing. No. I oh, it was no, great. you're making a little mark. But that was the first time I was ever in print, Funny. was winning a baseball game yep. with my hitting. And I said, that's great. So I got you with winning in the I didn't title say right that. There. I just liked it. I don't think I said that's great. I it think just I just felt, liked, oh, yeah. it felt good. So even then, it's pretty clear that Donald Trump loved to have his name out there and print in big lights and to have people talking about him, right? Yes. And I think the fact that he remembers this so acutely is a reminder to us of how important his New York Military Academy days were. I think that it was quite traumatic for him to be sent away. And I also think that everything that happened in those years was very formative. I I think that, of course, all of us are formed in adolescence and early adulthood, but I think for Donald, these memories take on mythic qualities. And the idea that he got the big hit in the ball game and was the hero, most men age 70 wouldn't be able to recall those moments, but it's very sharp in his memory. And I think it's, it must have been almost like that first hit of a drug that an addict gets, and it becomes the drug of choice for their lifelong experience. And in Donald's case, that first hit of publicity set him off on this pursuit of attention that was endless. But there's another level to what he said in that quote, which is that not everyone gets to be Donald Trump, that that print reference he got 
was really special, it was really rare. And it's almost as if the most visceral and meaningful part of it for him is that no one else gets it but him. Seeing my name in print felt good. Yeah. Very interesting. It's so, very interesting. I think everybody has that experience if they let themselves be honest about it. Like if, well, yeah. well, most people aren't in print, though. Don't forget how many people are in print. Yeah, I think people would like it, but who's in print? Right. Mm. Nobody's in print. I mean... You get that little thing, even if you know, listing the honor roll or something. But but in your world, basically, you're not in print because people aren't going to write. Even in look, this was just a special thing where I had a lot of hits and a lot of stuff, right? Right. But even then, you know, you're not going to be in print unless you did that. So, Mm. so very few people are in print. What's that about? Well, it's about rank and hierarchy and superiority, and it plays into one of the other main elements of the Trump identity, and that's genetic superiority. This is a guy who really believes that people have gifts that are defining and that you don't even really have to cultivate them. They're given to you by your parents. Um, As his son said to me, it's the racehorse theory. So if you're father was a fast runner, you're going to be a fast runner. If your mother was beautiful, you're going to be beautiful. And in Donald's mind, this was an affirmation of his superiority, and it has to be measured against everyone else. So the guy has to be number one, and that means that everyone else has to fall below him. And it's key to be able to look down and see that everyone is beneath him without people trailing behind, how do you know that you're first? Michael, that belief that his superiority is not perhaps earned, but maybe kind of genetically ingrained in him, comes up when he talks about the simplest possible thing, which is sinking a putt on the golf course. Sports is a great metaphor in a certain way for a lot of things. So you have guys that in playing golf, they're very good putters. Well, they're very good ball strikers. Well, they're very good at something. Same in baseball, same in football. Okay. Some can run better. Some. It was very natural for me. It wasn't like, oh, gee, I'm thinking how. It just was a natural flow of events for me. Hmm. Like I'm a natural putter. You know, you have guys can't putt, and you have guys yeah. that don't understand why they can't putt. They, they, they don't understand it. But a lot of it is genetic. I think it's fair to say that golfing skills are not genetic, that they can be learned. So why does he talk about it that way? I think it's a way for him to explain all that he has. And and this is a challenge for a lot of people who have acquired great wealth, often under suspect circumstances. So this is a guy who's gamed the system his whole life. And you could say that his record on taxes and how he hasn't paid taxes for so many years is a product of the tax code, and that's true. But he chose to go into a business where playing that system was really the game. He didn't become an inventor who gave us products that matter to us. He didn't uh, establish factories to produce goods at a superior quality and lower price. What he did was play games with numbers. And 
benefit from that. And if you acquire all of this in circumstances that far exceed your effort, you know, it, you have to somehow justify why your hourly rate is a million dollars and the guy who opens the door for you downstairs earns $15 an hour. And that is genetic superiority. You know, some people are just worth more. And, and if you're a Trump, you are intrinsically worth more. And that is a handy way to justify all that he has compared with everyone else. I want to go back to media for a minute, because in Trump's mind, he always deserved the media in the way he deserved to be the best putter, and he deserved to be the guy who could avoid paying taxes. There's this pretty amazing moment in the interview where he recalls who it is, other than Donald Trump, who gets the kind of media attention he does from Barbara Walters. Why would I say, no, I don't want it. By the way, I'll pay $100,000 for an ad that lasts for 20 seconds, but I'm not going to do a show. So when Barbara Walters, she did the, you know, 10 most fascinating people, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm the only one that's been, no, excuse me, myself and Hillary Clinton are the only one that have been on it twice. How remarkable is that? I mean, you did this interview before he was even thinking of running for president, but there he was keeping score in his head with the woman he'd eventually run for president against. Who else would know that? Who else would keep track of how many interviews someone got with Barbara Walters? I think, though, that he is aware of how often he was on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I think he's very much aware of where he ranked in surveys of the most admired Americans or the most admired people in the world. And there were eras when he ranked very high. So even the fact that I'm using the word ranked, it's so ingrained in his mentality, this winning and losing, piling up the clippings. He used to keep videotapes of himself near his desk back in the days when VCRs were in use. And he would pop one in just to get a little jolt to his ego. So the other side of this, though, is to think about how weak his ego must be to need this reinforcement so often. And he now, I think, has almost like a catalog in his head of how often he got this attention, this headline, this access to a TV show. And when he's down, he can rifle through these memories and sustain himself with what is really a very superficial form of nourishment, but it might be exactly what he needs. So all this feels deeply connected to Donald Trump's views on celebrity, who who gets to be famous, who's worthy of our acclaim, and who is not worthy of it at all. And it feels like for Trump, that metric is different for men than it is necessarily for women. And let's use the example of Kim Novak. To Trump, she's someone who had great celebrity, of course. She was a star of of 1950s film. But she lost her stature, as he tells it, because she lost her looks. She appeared at the Academy Awards and her face was a mess. Didn't you say something about that? I did, I did. Did you feel bad after that? A little bit, but you know. Why did you do it? Because if she's putting herself out there like that, uh, 
Uh, by the way, I wasn't the only one. It was. I'm sure everybody sure. noticed. Kim Novak. Yes, Kim but Novak. you yeah. said it. No, I said that she should sue her plastic surgeon. Right. Well, in one way, on. this is, no, uh, I didn't think I got in trouble. No, I thought some people thought it was great, and other people thought, it, that's why I have five million people, I yeah. guess, you know. It was provocative. It was provocative, yes. So, was that an impulse? I used to think she was beautiful, by the way. She was. Oh, she was. I used to, but she got on the stage. You know, don't forget, she's been away for... Did you write that? It was so moment? shocking that you, you could have... I did. I wrote it at the moment. It was okay. So are you? That's what I was wondering. I mean, are you thinking about the consequences of that when you're putting yourself out there with that kind of statement? You, with Twitter, you'll say things that you can regret because you're doing them instantaneously. Okay. That one was. But you're being very wrong. honest. Well, come you on. Know, that's nothing compared to me. They're always knocking the shit out of my hair. Well, right. well when would. they're knocking you and you hit back, I think oh, that's expected. You know what's really <laughs> amazing? I knock Cher. Cher says yeah. some nasty shit. So I took on Cher. I knocked the shit out yeah. of her. And she never quoted, she never said a thing about me after that. Yeah. Uh, Bette Midler said something about, I said, Bette Midler is unattractive both inside and out. Okay? That was the last time. That was it. She was gone. All of a sudden, Bette Midler saying, you know, because of my political views, she was saying bad shit right, about yeah. Donald Trump, right? So I started, you know, I just said, wow, Bette Midler said bad crap about me. Then I go, this is one of the most unattractive women I've ever seen. <laughs> then I added, both inside and out. And out, yeah. Bette Midler, never heard from her again. That was the end. It got to be a big thing. And well, right, so, I mean, so, so what, I, what I do like, when somebody attacks me, I attack back. And now here's the funny thing. So Cher will say something about me, and then I hit her really hard. They'll say, oh, how can you talk about a woman right. like that? Or how can you talk about somebody like that? So she'll knock my hair, which is fine. But but she'll say, oh, he wears the worst wig I've ever seen. Right. Right? So then I'll hit her. And they'll say, how can you say so bad about her? I say, well, what did she say about me? So you see, there's a very unfair double standard. Yes, but that lady at the Academy Awards. She okay, didn't. well then you could be right. I mean, and, you could be right. I, I haven't. I, I didn't receive any flack. I mean, many people have said, in all fairness, in all due respect. But nobody respects women more than Donald Trump does. I also think when we think about the Kim Novak incident, it's important to think about how, as a boy in the 1950s, he may have been really taken with her. And now he's a man of 70, and I think there's some dissonance in his head, like, why is this beautiful creature no longer beautiful? This is my contemporary. And of course, he always shifts his attention to someone younger, someone younger, someone younger. So what matters is the woman as object, not the woman as human being. And so you're worthy if you are a beautiful object. And if you're no longer a beautiful object, you're no, no longer worthy. So in that sense, he may look at Kim Novak and say, if you've lost your beauty and therefore your stature, I may lose my beauty and my stature. And therefore, I think he might be mad. I think there's part of him that is angry at women who change, who age, who confront him with his, with his own uh, maturity, really his own mortality. And that's why a lot of men, I think, have these May-December relationships, is they can't imagine their own mortality, and they somehow are trying to fight it off by 
surrounding themselves with the women who represent their youth. And so they're looking out with these eyes from this soul that they're certain is still young, but they really are old men, and they can't accept it. And I think in Donald's case, his development is so limited, and he's so arrested in this era of the 1950s and 60s that he's constantly returning to that reality to make himself feel good. As that exchange wears on, as I recall it, you eventually drew out of him something approaching regret. And I believe it may have been the only time in your interviews that he said, basically, I wish I hadn't done that. Do you think he was doing that because he thought you needed to hear it or because he actually meant it? I think he meant it. I think he meant it because he got caught, but the fact that he got caught made him think about it. And this is almost the heartbreaking thing about Donald Trump, and I think it's the thing that drew Marla Maples to him, I think it's the thing that drew Ivana to him, is if you push hard enough, you'll get to something almost genuine, and it's tantalizing. I think at the end of that interview, I might have even said to him, you know, for a minute there, I liked you. And and I did. And, and this is what happens to, I think, a lot of journalists as they meet him. And if you dig deep enough, you might get something genuine for a moment, and it's really kind of great. And then he retreats, and he becomes the caricature again. And it's very disappointing. I also think that that moment was painful for him. I don't think that he can sustain thinking about how he hurt someone and how that person was as real as he is. Uh, Because were he to sustain that, then all of the damage that he has done to literally thousands and maybe tens of thousands of people and now to our entire nation as he's dragged us through this travesty of an election would come crashing in on him. And how could he stand it? to know in his heart that he's done so much damage to so many people. That was Michael D'Antonio in his living room on Long Island, talking about what he learned in his hours of interviews with Donald Trump. We'll stop here for now. Tomorrow, in part two of our show, we'll pick up right where we left off, and we'll hear more about Trump's views on celebrity, his fear of humiliation, his belief that some people will never succeed, and we'll hear from his grown children about what it's like growing up Trump. See you then. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.